Welcome, everyone, to episode 65, Zika virus and stem cells. I'm Dr. Kiki, here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for the overwhelming response to episode 64. We really hope you did enjoy it. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'm hanging in, Kiki. I'm doing pretty well, although I have to say the weather could be better. It's spring and it's raining. I feel like I'm in Seattle or Portland over in the Pacific Northwest like you. It's brutal. How do you live with this? I don't know. Isn't spring supposed to be the rainy season? April showers bring May flowers and all that kind of stuff. Oh, please don't give me that. Spring is supposed to be the time where the flowers, I'll take those, but warmth, you know, maybe 60 degree days I would take, not 50 and rainy. Not interested. At least it's not 20 and snowy, right? Well, you're one of those people, I guess. (laughs) I try. I try to look on the brighter side of things. I hate you types. (laughs) I'm always doing my best. You know, it'll be that odd day when I'm just down on everything and you'll be like, Kiki, what's wrong with you? (laughs) Then I know something's really wrong. I have to check the uh, current events for some kind of tragedy, apocalyptic scenario. I know. Well, as it rains... The clouds are going to part and it'll be a sunny day. There's going to be those beautiful summer sunny days coming where you're going to have to deal with all that New York humidity. Yeah, well, that's, that's awesome. the thing. You, you get two weeks in spring in New York anyway. It goes from super cold to super hot two weeks later. But you get those two weeks. And now I feel like they cut that to maybe one. So I feel kind of it's like a jip, you know. You've been gypped, totally. Spring, I've totally been gypped. <laughs> I, well, I feel sorry for you. Yeah, I can <laughs> tell. You're really feeling sorry for me over there. Okay, uh, let's get down to business with this science, stem cell science we like so much. Make sure all of you out there engage with us on all of our channels. The easiest way to do that is by going to stemcellchannels.com where you can easily access all of our stem cell tools like signing up for our newsletter. If you sign up for the newsletter, we will email you when a new show is released that will contain all of the links to the papers we discuss, as well as a detailed show summary that makes your life easier. Everyone likes having an easier life. Also, you can sign up for our stem cell forum. We've created the first forum for all things stem cells called Stem Cell Chat. Go sign up for free and join the conversation. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right, Dalen, can you hear the noise outside? Yeah, what do you got going on over there? Massive sewer reconstruction project. They're digging, they're throwing down metal plates, I think, just for our podcast. They're like, you're doing a podcast? (laughs) Smash! I'm going to throw this plate down. (laughs) You got to watch out for the pipes. If they do anything in the sewer, I say let them do it. You don't want to end up like Flint. Let them handle their business. That's right. I am all about that. And so I'm just going to let it go. Let it flow. We're going to have a great show today. Our guest for episode 65 is Dr. Arnold Krigstein, who we have invited on the show to discuss his work on neural stem and progenitor cells and what his latest paper suggests about Zika virus. But right now, let's round it up. What do you say? Absolutely, Kiki. Let's do it. I'm really psyched about today's show. A lot of questions about Zika in the public, and I have a lot of scientific questions. So I think this is really going to be a great conversation. But first, the science roundup. 
The Roundup is sponsored by Biotechni. Biotechni brings together the prestigious life science research brands of R&D Systems, Novus Biologicals, Tokris Bioscience, and Protein Simple to provide stem cell researchers with high-quality reagents that will optimize and standardize their workflow. Go to StemCellPodcast.com and click on the banner for more info. All right, Kiki, let's get to the Roundup. All right. I've got so much science. Bring it. First in the science is you're talking about the rain and the warm weather coming. You worried about Zika, Dalen? Oh, man, I'm terrified. I got young kids. I I don't think it's all about in utero. I'm worried. I know. Any developing brain may be vulnerable to the Zika. We got to talk to uh, Dr. Crickstein about that. Absolutely. Well, aside from his paper and many others out there, there is another research paper out suggesting that Zika is even more dangerous than we thought. Oh, geez. Yeah. So we know that it's linked with microcephaly and Guillain-Barre syndrome. It has been thought that it could affect about 1% of infected pregnant women's babies. But now, dun-dun-dun, researchers publishing... In the New England Journal of Medicine say that they have shown about 29% of scans showed abnormalities in babies in the womb. That includes growth restrictions and other neurological disorders besides microcephaly in women infected with Zika. And so researchers are now saying that Zika could affect up to 20% or one-fifth of pregnant women with the virus. So before it was If you're infected with the virus, 1% chance that something's going to happen to your child. But now they're expanding their definition of what could go wrong, and it's expanding the percentage of risk. So you're saying it's pretty much a lock that if you get Zika when you're pregnant, you're in a pretty bad position. Yeah. I mean, when you look at 1%, it's like, okay, that's really not a high chance of something going wrong. I'll roll the dice with roll 1%. The dice. Right. But 20%, 29% as this particular analysis showed, uh, that is, that's getting to a point where you just, you don't want to play those odds. No. Just don't want to do it. And now the World Health Organization is saying that Zika is very likely to spread to Europe this summer as the mosquitoes that transmit the virus are going to be circulating more and more with warm temperatures, and we're expecting it to be a hot one. So World Health Organization is saying, Europe, I'm, I'm going to guess the United States is probably in there too. So wherever those international mosquitoes go, we got to watch out they're, for the spread of this disease. They're bringing the Zika with them. That's right. Ah. That's a bummer. <laughs> I'm going to stay here in the Northwest Far away from Florida and the eastern seaboard. (laughs) Moving on from one disease to another, have you heard of prions? Oh, man, yeah, that was like 10 years ago, the mad cow. Right, prions, these little proteins that cause mad cow. Now, when they cause mad cow, that's because they are misfolded. And there are lots of these prion proteins in our cells. And they have been discovered in yeast cells, fungi, animals, fish, you know, wherever we look, we find them in the cells of organisms. So we're really realizing that they have normal functions in cells for development. I mean, it's been found that in humans, it may, the normal prion proteins may have a role in memory. Additionally, there's a role for prion proteins in stem cells. And last year, researchers found that there was an issue with prion proteins 
being transmitted from the grass that animals with scrapie or mad cow disease had lived in. So the grass that they were defecating in and urinating on, the grasses were able to spread the misfolded prion proteins to healthy animals. And the question is, how does that incorporation of the misfolded protein happen and why would it happen? And so now there's a study that just came out in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that shows that there are a number of these prion proteins naturally occurring in plants. And there's one particular protein called luminidependens, and it's been discovered in Arabidopsis thaliana, which is a lab plant that many researchers use for various studies. But what they've found is that it is able to shapeshift. And this shape-shifting is normal in these plants, and that it may have a role for helping plants have memory of things like whether the winter was really cold and they need to act differently for uh, sending out seeds in the spring or whether it was a very dry year and whether the next generation has to act particularly differently. So there are a lot of plant memories that researchers have been talking about recently, not knowing how they're, how they're transmitted, but this kind of a shape-shifting protein may have a role in that. And now, now my question is, does that shape-shifting protein get misfolded when it comes into contact with the disease-causing prion proteins? Mm. So I think there are some really interesting links here. It's like uh, bad memories. Nobody likes yeah. bad memories, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but it, this, it's really neat research. We're finding more and more that these prion proteins, they're in everything, and they definitely have normal functions and really interesting functions like, wow, memory for plants. That's pretty interesting. Well, I'll tell you, Kiki, that memory's not going to help this year because I don't <laughs> think there's, a, there's weather like this in recent memory. These plants are going to be thrown for a loop. I know. We'll see. I don't know. Maybe Lumina Dependence has, will be able to keep up with it. I don't know. Speaking of climate change, other things for plants... Every day, things changing. It changes a lot. You don't know how it's going to change, right? It's totally uncertain. How does that make you feel? Oh, so stressed. Right, so stressed out. Well, a little bit of stress isn't necessarily bad for you. You know that? It's okay to be stressed. I mean, if you've ever let yourself go on writing up a paper or finishing a project that you know has a deadline until the last minute, and you're just like, I can't write anything. I can't do it. I can't put it together. And it's the last minute. You're like, ah, and the stress comes in and you write it and it's done. Bam. That stress helped you get that project done. That fight or flight response that our bodies produce actually has some amount of benefit. So the researchers in this particular study published in Nature Communications are, are, want people to know that stress does prepare us to deal with environmental changes. And so there is a lot to be said for figuring out and understanding how uncertainty itself might make us stressed out. But then what do we do with that stress afterwards is what's important. They say uh, their study reveals more quantitatively how stress, both self-reported and measured with physiological arousal, is driven by, quote, irreducible uncertainty uncertainty about the state of the world that we can't control. And it's that irreducible uncertainty, the fact that the job that you can't, you don't know if you're going to get a job until the call comes through. There's nothing you can do about it. That, that's what gets to you. But 
it's the part of the stress we can control is the positive side. There's the positive side of the stress. And so the researchers, Klaus Lamb, who's involved in this, says we tend to think of stress as a negative effect. You don't want to be stressed. But in the end, if you're not stressed, you're not going to perform and you need a certain level of stress to meet challenges. Let me tell you, Kiki, I love Klaus Lamb. Klaus Lamb is my boy. Yeah. But this is one of these things to me where it's like, all right, my takeaway is so with the problems that you have some measure of control over, those are like motivators. Those are good. And the problems that you have no control over, those are the ones that cause stress. Right. Is that news? That's what I'm wondering. Is this something new? Yeah. Klaus Lamb. No, no takeaway of Klaus Lamb. That's my boy. I'm just saying maybe this is one of those that we all know it, but someone just had to prove it. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's the quantitatively making it more understood. And, you know, they, I think what Klaus Lamb wants to do here is try and get the word out to change the public perception of stress. Like now it's like the happiness movement and the no stress movement. We all have uh, to yeah, meditate and like oh, any amount that. of stress is bad. And that's yeah, not, please. that's yeah, really. I'm that's, with Klaus. I'm with Klaus on oh, that. Oh, please. I like your response. <laughs> <laughs> so when I'm stressed out, what do I like to do? Tell me. Sleep. I like to sleep. Sometimes I can't sleep because the thoughts keep going in my head. And I'm like, ah, I'd really like to be sleeping right now. And I can't. Well, when we sleep, we have very particular types of brain activity. We have REM sleep, you know, rapid eye movement when we're dreaming. And we also have slow wave sleep. And the brain alternates between these different kinds of sleep. And the, the slow wave deep sleep, there's a very sparse bursts of these slow wave activation. And then the rapid eye movement, it's quick and fast and the brain is actually seems much more awake. And so far in research, well, I guess I should say until now in research, nobody had ever looked at any other brains than those of mammals or birds while sleeping. And so of course, because those are the only ones that we've looked at, we say no other animals have the same kind of sleep that we do. But now researchers have looked at the brains of lizards. Mm. Yeah, they've looked at the, the brains of lizards to determine whether or not they had the same kind of sleep activity. Lizard brain has a real negative connotation. In my, whenever <laughs> people talk about my lizard brain, it's, it's, it's always referring to some base activity. But I guess they got to go down, down the clades, down, down into the quote-unquote, lower organisms to get at the fundamental mechanisms here, huh? Right, exactly. So you think of it as like the lower brain. And that's one of the interesting things that comes out of this study is that these Australian dragons that they recorded from, while they have the same types of phasic sleep, the slow wave and the REM sleep, they recorded this activity from an area of the brain called the dorsal ventricular ridge. And it has, according to the abstract, no obvious hodological similarity with the mammalian hippocampus from which this kind of sleep pattern originates in mammals. So now the question is, the dorsal ventricular ridge, how similar is this to the area of the brain that's activated in this kind of sleep to birds? Because I know that there is a similarity between, even though it's not the same tissue, there's a structural similarity between the avian and the mammalian hippocampuses. So, and the bird brain is more similar to the lizard brain than the mammal brain. So now there's some really interesting questions about what the evolutionary conservation of this 
type of uh, sleep pattern and its importance and why certain brain areas would be responsible for it in lizards and not necessarily in other species. Interesting. Yeah. So same activity, a little bit different brain area, some cool stuff going on there. And this is an example of, of course, we just needed to look for it in another organism. Mm -hmm. All we have to do is go looking and very often we'll find it. And then, oh joy, oh joy. The EPA has taken a new look at how much methane the United States is emitting. Oh no. You know, whenever you hear the EPA, <laughs> the next few sentences are never positive. It's When's the EPA going to be like, hey, everything's great. The EPA says we're on the right track. Never. That's when. Yeah, so we've been undercounting emissions, mm. and not by a small amount. The latest report on April 15th says that we've been undercounting them by about 20 to 60 percent. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so... That's a huge range, by the way. Wow. Yeah, two-thirds of the increase in the amount that we are emitting comes from natural gas and petroleum sectors, rest of it coming from landfills and that natural gas and petroleum sector. A lot of it is coming from fracking and just leakage, where they're not counting that as part of what we're emitting. But if we look at what's happening over the land and actually what's out there, there's just leakage happening because the fracking practices are, they don't, it's not like a nice tight seal, a pipe that goes into the ground and it's the only gas that comes out. It's a crack in the earth mm. and stuff leaks out. So they're not collecting everything and a lot is coming out. So all those happy, happy stories about the United States with our emissions going down and how great we are at not putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere these days, thanks to reducing our reliance on coal. Well, ta-da, our reliance on natural gas is going to be a problem because methane, while it doesn't act in the long term, it is much more active than carbon dioxide in the very near term. So the solution has become the problem. Yep. And on continues the cycle. Yep. We just need, you know, renewable resources. That's what we got to be working on. Get a Tesla. Get a Tesla. <laughs> right. Although they say Tesla, the footprint's not that great either. Because, you know, that electricity has to come from somewhere. At the end of the day, we just all need to walk more, I guess. If the solar-powered battery factories that they're creating come to pass and everything works in the cycle that Elon Musk is envisioning, solar-powered giant battery factories are going to produce the energy that the cars are going to use, and it's all going to be happy, happy. And then you know what? Everybody at the EPA is going to get fired. They're going to have nothing to do. <laughs> nothing to do. We can't have that. What? <laughs> and my final story is a really, really strange and interesting story about getting a hole in the head. You know, there is something too that idiom of speech, I need whatever it is, like I need a hole in the head. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Archaeological Institute researchers from Berlin published in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology a study about a ritualistic surgery in which, I don't know whether they were ancient surgeons or ancient spiritual men or women. Shaman or something. Shaman, right. But they. Shay women. <laughs> they found skulls. In southwestern Russia, about 13 people previously excavated at seven ancient sites in the region had holes in their head in the same spot, the middle of the back of the head, 
they received ancient trepanations. Trepanation is that word for getting a hole in the head. And it wasn't for the relief of pressure. It didn't seem to be for any kind of surgical medical purpose. And so lead researcher Julia Gresky says there may have been an original medical purpose for these trepanations, which over time changed to a symbolic treatment. Basically, they found it's 11 of the skulls showed signs of healing and bone growth, indicating that the individuals survived the operation and often lived for years afterwards. They identified six males and six females in this skull sample. One specimen sex couldn't be determined, so it's everybody, men and women, are, we're getting holes in the head. It's just this really interesting practice. The researcher, uh, another researcher, Maria Mednikova of the Russian Academy of Sciences in Moscow, says, we don't know the myths and religions of tribes that lived in that area 6,000 years ago. So we don't know why they did this, but dating back maybe up to 11,000 years ago in this particular region, there was a group of people who, for some reason, needed to put holes in the back of their head. Let's uh, predict a little here. I'm saying it's not going to be very long before those dudes with the earplugs start going for some trepanations. Right. <laughs> That's going to be the new <laughs> hot thing. And you can be the one who disseminated it. I'm going to see tattoo parlors. It's going to say piercings, tattoos, and trepanations. And trepanations. There you go. All right. That does it for me. What do you have for your stem cell science roundup, Dalen? I got some good stories, Kiki. Awesome. I'm going to start... With the heart, very, you know, close to my research interest uh, for ages, a symbol of love and devotion, the physiological engine of, uh, you know, us kicking around the heart, you know, and when it goes wrong, it's the number one killer. So there's a lot of interest in using stem cells potentially to repair heart disease, heart damage if you have a heart attack. And the idea, it's one of the first ideas that was out there with stem cells. You shoot some cells in there and you'll patch up the heart. But, you know, the other real, I think, more near-term application for stem cells, and a lot of people are appreciating this, is disease modeling. How can you use these cells to try and create a platform whereby you can look at the systems and understand the mechanisms that lead to systems either working correctly or incorrectly. And this disease modeling is really taking off. But in the heart, there's an added problem when you're trying to model any system. You want to get as close to that system as possible. And, of course, a lot of the work and most of the work we do in the lab is on these tissue monolayers, which are cells that are in like a flat sheet, which obviously is not how we're walking around. We're three-dimensional, and the heart is a complex three-dimensional organ made up of all these constituents and cell types. In order to model disease processes or physiological processes, an important goal is to try and make a kind of engineered heart muscle. So tissue engineering approaches in the past few years have great potential to increase the physiological relevance of these cardiomyocytes that we get from ES cells or IPS cells. But forming these engineered heart structures, you know, the three-dimensional structures really and typically requires lots and lots of cells, many more than a million cells per unit of tissue. And strategies that exist now to miniaturize this thing and make it more amenable to mass production, they don't really work. And this is really what you need to go in the direction of disease modeling and drug screening, some of these near-term applications. So an alternative is these microscale cardiospheres. 
But the problem is it's hard to get these little units, which are these tiny spheroids of cells. It's hard to get them complexed into the assembly, the elongated muscle, so that you can make like actual measurements, these direct force measurements. Right. Like if, if you're talking about a sphere, you don't think of elongation. Yeah, you, want it to be, you know, yeah. it's like, you know, that ice cream that have you ever gotten those dots for your kids? You go to the amusement park and it's not like ice cream. It's those little dots. I hate that stuff. It's disgusting. <laughs> but can you imagine? It. It's like picture making a heart out of a bunch of little spheres. It's just not going to fly. It's yep. not going to mirror the physiology. So yep. here. This is Bruce Conklin's group here in uh, Nature Communication. They do good work. They describe an approach that combines the features of the engineered heart muscle, that macro thing that requires a lot of cells. It's really tough to do. And they combine that with the micro, the cardiosphere approach, and they make something called micro heart muscle arrays. These are arrays in which elongated muscle fibers are formed in a relatively easily fabricated template with with as few as 2,000 cardiomyocytes for individual tissue, okay? So these units, they exhibit uniaxial contractility and alignment, robust sarcomere assembly, and reduced variability in hypersensitivity and drug responsiveness compared to monolayers with the same cellular composition. Do you know what that means, Kiki? Tell me. That means they're good. Yeah. That means they're good <laughs> and probably arguably better than existing methods. So based on this kind of easy fabrication method, the potential to feed into these mass production lines and to use smaller amounts of cells, Nice. it's a, it's a really powerful system for really realizing these goals of... Um, disease modeling on an industrial scale. So we can look at, you know, disease and toxicology in the heart and drug screening and try and get somewhere with kind of low-hanging fruit applications of stem cells, not necessarily the regenerative therapies, but using the tool to gain insight. Yeah, I think studies like these are really interesting, I guess, from the angle of trying to recreate what's actually happening in the organ Mm. that you're talking about, like with the heart muscle, of course, it wouldn't be going spherically with the muscle at all angles to itself. It is in sheets and it, it has certain, the, the cells have certain orientation in order to be able to connect and send their electrochemical messages and, their, and contract in the proper manner. So you want a heart muscle to be designed in a different way than you want a kidney or some other organoid. Absolutely. The heart in particular. I mean, you know, we're talking about a machine here, a biological machine that contracts, you know, upwards of 4 billion times in in a typical lifespan. So this is a well-built machine and it's definitely not just a spheroid. I want to know how to keep mine going and don't stop it, right? You came to the wrong person. Uh, I know. I'm (laughs) sure someone will tell you, but it's not going to be me. I'm sure you've stopped plenty of hearts in your time too. So maybe it's justice. (laughs) So let's move on. The uh, next study I'm going to talk about is from our friend, Don Wei, Huang Fu. She's been on the program before. She is a friend. And in this study in cell stem cells, she's following up on her previous study that she actually talked about on the show, which was also in cell stem cell. And I got to tell you, Don Wei, with this frequency and scale of productivity, Don Wei, don't play. That's (laughs) the poem I wrote about her, and it's bearing out. I've always known that she was a rising star, and she's now exceeded all expectations. In this story, she had previously figured out and made this really elegant tool, a system for inducibly and reversibly on command doing this genome editing, the CRISPR, Talon-type technology. She could really 
in a very controllable way, induce specific recombination of genes and knockout of genes in, in a human pluripotent stem cell system. And in developing that tool, she clearly moved to the next step and implemented that tool to gain some real insight into some of the mechanisms that underlie both pancreatic development as well as the pathology in the pancreas that underlies diabetes in some cases. So the pancreas, as you know, it's, it's the, the organ that mediates our blood glu- glucose levels and is the organ that's affected in, in diabetic patients. So what Don Wei did is that she used this approach with the Talon and CRISPR-based gene editing approach and combined it in her human pluripotent stem cell platform to do a systematic and rigorous analysis of eight genes. I'm not going to name you. It's, it's just alphabet soup. But these eight genes that have been described to be relevant for pancreatic development – but, you know, the, the understanding of how they were relevant was not so, I guess, refined. They knew they were important, but maybe not to the degree that they would like mechanistically. So what Don Wei did is that she integrated it into this platform. OK, so just brief background. When you're differentiating these pancreatic cells, they go in the stepwise way. They start with the ES cell, then they become definitive endoderm is the first step, and then a pancreatic progenitor is the next step, and then they become these insulin-secreting beta cells, which are the business end, the therapeutic end of that hierarchy there. And what Dan, Dan Wei did is that, or group did, uh, is they knocked out all these genes systematically and then subjected the cells to the paces of this differentiation paradigm and saw where things went wrong. And ultimately, looking at all these genes, they gained some really nice insights. So, you know, the general or straightforward ones is that they pretty much zeroed in on genes that acted specifically in regulating, say, the number of pancreatic progenitors and versus other genes that were perhaps more important for generating the, the functional beta cell at the end. And interestingly, they showed that there might be a divergent role for this one gene, NGN3, between humans and mice. That's to say that the gene does different things in humans and mice, which is important. So important. Because we're looking at mice as models. You know, we're trying to cure diabetes in mice. It may be relevant to note that the, the way we're going about it or the insights we're gaining in the mouse system may not necessarily apply for uh, human therapies. Yeah, especially if we're talking about those, the beta cell therapeutic level. Yes. If you're not looking at the right gene or if it, something is not happening. We're not going to get there. We could be putting the wrong cells in there. We could be putting cells that are just behaving a little bit awry. So mm-hmm. Don Wei, she's done it again. We should have her on the show again because I guarantee you she's on to the next big thing and it won't be long before she comes out with it. All right, so on to another story that was also published recently in the same day, actually, in Cell Stem Cell. This is Chemical Control of Grafted Human PSC-Derived Neurons in a Mouse Model of Parkinson's Disease. All right, so Parkinson's disease. Now, this is a... basically a loss of dopaminergic neurons, okay? And this leads to inability to affect motor control. And one of the early, again, ideas with stem cells is that you lose the cells. All right, let's make some more in vitro. We'll plug them in there and we'll, we'll cure the disease. And this is, you know, basically an pr- approach that's still viable. But I think what we've realized is you can't just shove the cells in there, Kiki. You know what I mean? Yeah, historically, they tried that first off and people had, as the cells grew and differentiated, they had some really 
unreliable effects and things that you really yes. were, were not good. Tremors and movement yes. disorders worse than what they had previously. Exactly. And that's the key. I mean, not just unreliable, but kind of a major liability. Yeah. And it makes sense. You know, again, similar to the heart, the brain is this finely tuned organ that it's way beyond our ability to understand it. And the nuance is tremendous. And yep. just putting in a bunch of cells there, we're not going to probably get to the right levels of stimulation or a cell count or whatever it is, the unknown unknowns. We, we don't know how we're affecting the system. Uh, and so an important goal, you know, is to get a very refined, precise control over the, the, the graft that we're putting in there. So some studies have used optogenetics. I think this is one of the coolest things in the last few years. It's been awarded the Breakthrough Prize. It's probably going to win a Nobel. But this is the idea of using light to control these neurons. Yeah, but but optogenetics, I mean, you can do that in a mouse with a thin skull or a hole in its head. But how many people are going to want to walk around with a hole in their head all the time? No, maybe We're maybe back to trepidation. Boys. There we go. <laughs> we got to get your boys in the game. Maybe that's what they were way ahead of us. Maybe, know, maybe. 6,000 years ago. Shine a light on it. Okay. Shine a light. So, yes, you're right, though. It's just not practical. Elegant experimentally, mechanistically, yes. but perhaps not practical. So yeah. that's where this group came in. This is uh, Su Chun Zhang's group. Uh, again, published in Cell Stem Cell, they used a related but, uh, you know, different approach. And essentially what they did is they engineered some dopaminergic neurons that they made from human pluripotent stem cells. They made sure they were engineered to express, I love this name, they were made to express dreads. <laughs> okay, these are designer receptors exclusively activated by designer drug. All right. So the idea is you're putting in a receptor into these cells so that they're responsive only to the drug that you put in there. It's not a naturally occurring drug. It's you can essentially turn this thing on and off by giving the, the patient or the mouse in this case a pill. And they show that when they inject, you know, they engrafted these cells into the brains of these mice that were modeling Parkinson's disease. They had the motor defects. And amazingly, they showed that they could reverse the symptoms, but not just reverse the symptoms, but it was really based on whether or not these mice were taking the drug. They gave them the drug, the symptoms were reversed, they withdrew the drug, and the symptoms again manifested. So this is not only a very elegant way showing that the experimental tool that you're integrating is working, but it may represent a potential way of like controlling after the fact a graft that we're putting into patients. And let's be honest, we all know that the end game of stem cell research is mind control. Yep. <laughs> and this paper has taken us one step closer to that direction. We can give patients a pill and effectively make them into zombies that will act on our will. Well, I, that's stretching it a little bit. but No, no, no. no. <laughs> it's not just a conspiracy theory. I've talked to this girl and she's in league with DARPA. <laughs> <laughs> That's not actually true, I should say. The mind-controlled military of the future. They'll all be on dreads. It'll be <laughs> yeah, the military true. dread team, right? <laughs> there was a movie called Judge Dredd. It was probably the worst movie ever made, Sly Stallone. I know. And then it got remade, which I can't understand, but... You know, it's no coincidence they call these things dreads. That's that's my conspiracy theory here. All I say is it wins best acronym ever award. Yes, definitely. And this we're we're in tricky, murky territory with the trepanation and all the action we got in today's roundup. But the dreads, I think that takes the cake. Yep. 
All right, moving on. We're into cancer, okay? Cancer stem cells. We're going to talk about another thing that's a bit opaque to me. And I'm a real, I'm real naive to cancer and epigenetics. So I probably shouldn't be presenting this in the roundup, but it's what I'm doing. So this is a story about combined inhibition of epigenetic modifiers. DNMT and HDAC blocks the tumorigenicity of cancer stem cells. Okay, so... Recently, there's been a lot of work trying to zero in on what the cancer stem cell is. Not only the cancer stem cell, but like the normal stem cell in the breast, mammary stem cells. And to try and figure out kind of what happens to those normal mammary stem cells that makes them into cancer stem cells. And then how these cancer stem cells are regulated. Because if you can knock out that cancer stem cell, cancer is going to go away. Even if the somatic cancer cells are still there, they'll kind of peter out or stop growing. And the cancer stem cell being gone you can treat the tumor and it won't come back. At least that's the big idea out there. But, you know, the the understanding of mechanistically what's regulating the growth of cancer stem cells, there's still a lot to learn there. And the important thing here is that these stem cells make the tumor really resistant to chemo and radiotherapy. So if we could figure out why they're growing, it would be a major step in inhibiting that growth and stopping the cancer. So in this study, the, the authors use this as Sanjaraju's group, published in Cancer Research. If you want to get the actual pronunciation of the name, please look at the link on the website. My apologies to you, Dr. Sanjaraju. The group, they use the mammary tumor model to try and identify strategies for eliminating these cancer stem cells. And they found that there are two stem cells in the tissue that contribute to the cancer, and they're susceptible to these constant genetic and epigenetic modifications. And, you know, this is a trip to me. Our genes are one thing, and we all know this by now, but I think we're just starting to appreciate how much our environment, our lifestyle affects our cells, Kiki. So you want to keep your heart beating. I, I know you're a healthy person, but the real key is to try and reduce, I guess, or modulate all these epigenetic and modifications anyway. That's a bit of an aside. But the point is, is that these constant uh, modifications, they facilitate the transformation of these cancer stem cells and make them more tumorigenic. Right. So what the authors did is that they used these inhibitors of these epigenetic modifiers, one called 5-azacytidine, which inhibits DNMT, and butyrate, which is an inhibitor of HDAC. And they show that that markedly reduced the abundance of cancer stem cells in the tissue and increased the overall survival of the mouse. Sequencing analysis, RNA sequencing analysis, showed that there was inhibition of a lot of growth-promoting molecules when you inhibited these epigenetic modifiers. So it looks like by inhibiting these epigenetic modifiers, you're reducing the amount of these growth-promoting signals and thereby reducing the growth of the cancer. So at the end of the day, this seems like it might be a useful adjuvant to cancer therapy, especially because, you know, these are drugs that can be integrated into kind of a clinical paradigm more easily than cells. So this may be a big deal in terms of cancer treatment, specifically breast cancer treatment in in the near future. This is the interesting pathway to go down, especially if we can start to mix it with personalized genetics and determining potentially what epigenetic factors are the ones that contribute or environmental factors are the ones that contribute to tumorigenicity in certain patients. Because we do know that there are certain genetic profiles that lead to breast cancer in certain situations and not others. So 
you know, the question becomes, you know, what is the genetic profile of the individual? And then how can you apply the appropriate epigenetic inhibition to make it more successful? Right. And yeah, this is clearly the future of medicine, this personalized approach. Fascinating. Okay. So next, this is a story that actually um, we could have talked about with Dr. Moore, Kateri Moore, who's on the show last week, episode 64. This is about umbilical cord hematopoietic stem cells. Kateri Moore focused on hematopoietic stem cells that arise during development. This is another type of hematopoietic stem cell, but is as clinically important and has the same functional potential as those developmental hematopoietic stem cells, okay? So basically, these umbilical cord-derived, they call them cord blood HSCs, they're in play. They're used for a lot of life-saving regenerative therapies Currently, you know, the, the major stem cell therapy that's, that's out there right now and has been proven over decades is cord, uh, not necessarily cord blood, but hematopoietic or bone marrow, hematopoietic stem cell transplant, and more recently, umbilical cord blood transplant. And is this what people like when you're pregnant and then you have the baby and they're like, do you want to save the cord and the cord blood? Is this what it's being saved for? Yeah, well, yes. I mean, the question all pregnant couples ask me, should I save my cord blood? I don't really have a good answer for that for the couple themselves. But cord blood that isn't saved for particular specific use by a, in a private manner can go to, can be donated and put in the registry. Right. And a lot of treatments for blood hematological malignancies, leukemia or other types of uh, blood-based diseases, use umbilical cord blood as a transplant, as a, as a means of reconstituting the radio or chemo-ablated blood of, of a patient with leukemia. You know, you wipe out all their cancer cells and then you replace the empty cavity uh, that was their hematopoietic system with these stem cells that then replenish the whole supply. The problem is, is that, you know, in the cord, it comes from a tiny little organ that's feeding the blood to a little, you know, neonate. At that stage, it's not a lot of blood. So when you're talking about treating smaller patients, you know, smaller weight, smaller blood volume, one cord, the amount of stem cells in one cord can be enough. But in the most prevalent therapy, which is patients, you know, of more advanced age, their body weight and blood volume is such that the amount of hematopoietic stem cells in one cord is typically not enough to reconstitute their blood supply and they may succumb and ultimately, you know, have no blood and then are at risk of infection, constant blood transfusion. It's a big mess. So a lot of groups have been focused on trying to expand the number of stem cells, either take the small cord blood supply and then expand the number of hematopoietic stem cells in there. And there's been some like kind of small molecules and cytokine cocktails that have been used to that effect. And they they show significant promise. But the real mechanism inside the cell that regulates the expansion of a hematopoietic stem cell from the cord blood is totally unknown. And that's why this was a big story. It was Kristen Hope's group. It was published in Nature. And what they showed is that there's this RNA binding protein called Musashi. Musashi. 
It's musashi. I love the way that feels on my tongue. <laughs> you just want to say it. <laughs> I just want to say it over and over. Musashi 2, no less. Uh, musashi 2, which is an RNA binding protein. So this is a, a gene that the way it exerts its function is by binding and regulating all the RNA, or not all, but some specific RNAs that are floating around in the cell. So it's kind of a secondary regulatory, not at the gene level, but at the RNA level. Anyway, they, they looked at what kind of protein or what RNA species this Musashi protein binds to try and identify factors that are involved in self-renewal and expansion of hematopoietic stem cells. And what they showed is that if they overexpress this Musashi too, they can get a real pro-self-renewal phenotype, 17-fold increase in the short-term repopulating cells, 25-fold ex vivo expansion. These are all numbers that are really big better than anything wow. that's been done before. And, and the, by looking at global analysis of the Musashi, too, with the RNA, there's the target RNAs, they show that it directly attenuates this aryl hydrocarbon receptor signaling. And, you know, this presents a really good option because, you know, manipulating Musashi in the cell is probably going to be a stretch. But if you look at the targets and the signaling pathways that are regulated by Musashi, maybe you can short circuit it. And this aryl hydrocarbon receptor signaling is kind of that means of short circuiting it. So it's a really exciting way that we may be able to expand the population of hematopoietic stem cells in cord blood, and thereby one donor, one bag, one sample of cord blood would be enough to treat not only one patient, but perhaps multiple patients that were, you know, a good immune match. So it's really exciting. That's very exciting to be able to bring treatment to more individuals. Let's do it. Yeah, let's get to it. And anything that'll let you say that protein name more oh, times, that's I fine also. Musashi, I love it. Uh, oh, have we done it? Yeah, well, we're done with the roundup. We are. Awesome, awesome job. It was a lot of fun, a lot of good stories in there. But remember, everyone out there, all of the links to these papers will be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. And of course, they can be emailed directly to you by signing up for the newsletter. All right. So now let's get into this interview segment of the show. The interview segment is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies wants us to let you all know about a product called BrainFizz TM Neuronal Medium. BrainFizz is a new basal medium based on the published formulation by Cedric Barty and Fred Gage for the culture of primary and pluripotent stem cell-derived neurons. In BrainFizz neuronal medium, neuronal cultures experience brain-like physiological conditions and develop a higher proportion of synaptically active neurons. To get a free sample of BrainFizz neuronal medium, go to www.stemcell.com slash trybrainfizz. P-H-Y-S. All right, so our guest today is Dr. Arnold Krigstein. In 2004, Dr. Krigstein joined the neurology department at the University of California, San Francisco, and is currently the John Bowes Distinguished Professor in Stem Cell and Tissue Biology and founding director of the Eli and Edith Broad Center of Regeneration, Medicine, and Stem Cell Research at UCSF. Dr. Krigstein's research focuses on the way in which neural stem cell and progenitor cells in the embryonic brain produce neurons and ways in which this information can be used for cell-based therapies to treat diseases of the nervous system. 
He's recently begun to characterize the progenitor cells within the developing human brain to determine the genetic profiles of specific progenitor populations and to explore how these cells contribute to the huge expansion of neuron number that characterizes the human cerebral cortex. Dr. Craigstein, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Oh, thank you, Chris. I'm glad to be here. It's wonderful to have you on the show. Before we really get into your most recent paper, can we give the audience a little bit of background into what you work on in your lab? Sure. Well, I'm a developmental neurobiologist, so I'm very interested in how the nervous system forms. And the area of particular interest in my lab is the cerebral cortex, which, as you may know, is the uh, wrinkly part of the brain that you see when you think of the human brain. Uh, it's the part that expanded enormously during uh, evolution of humans. And it's the area that uh, is responsible for higher cognitive functions, learning and memory, things of that sort. Uh, and yet we know very little about the human neocortex, how it arises, what kinds of cells produce the neurons and the glial cells that make up the brain, how they manage to do that, how the cells individually differentiate from each other, and ultimately how they start to form circuits that are really specific for the functions that they mediate. So we're interested in all those issues. But over the years, I've uh, focused more and more on earlier and earlier stages, and in particular, in the stages of neurogenesis, when those nerve cells are first born. And they're derived from a kind of population of cells that are often referred to as neural stem cells. And, and that's really where my stem cell interest uh, arises. It's from understanding the biology of those neural stem cells and how they actually produce the nerve cells in the brain and the cerebral cortex. Is your focus on the, that early point in early development, is that because that's what distinguishes human development from other animals and maybe uh, accounts for the different type of intelligence that humans have relative to other species? Well, you know, you're touching on a very interesting, uh, really unsolved uh, issue about uh, what makes the humans distinct from other primates or other mammals in general. Uh, and it does begin at early stages, but there's certainly going to be features that occur that uh, develop later in life that are also underlying some of those unique abilities. Circuits are clearly involved. And at the early stages I'm looking at, the circuits uh, haven't even begun yet. In fact, the elements, the neurons that form those circuits haven't been born. So uh, there is a genetic code that begins to unravel and that's human-specific at these very early stages. But that's really where we're starting to begin our analysis. We're looking at how those early human-specific programs unfold at these really early stages. Now, one of the features of the human brain that I hinted at before is the fact that it, it really has expanded during brain evolution. Huge numbers of neurons be, are, are produced during these uh, fetal stages. And if you look at other mammal brains, you know, the human brain is, isn't the biggest and it isn't the most highly folded. Uh, whales and elephants have bigger, more highly folded brains if you look at them or weigh them. But if you count the number of cells in the cerebral cortex, the human brain still has the highest number. We have around 88 billion or so. And most of those are in the cerebral cortex and the cerebellum. And the question is, how are they produced? And one of the features that helps make humans perhaps unique or different uh, is that they have the capacity to generate so many more neurons. So that's also one of the things that sort of highlights our interest in those neural stem cells and how they produce neurons in human brain development in particular, but also in, in other mammals. Just a quick detail there that caught my attention. So there's more cells in the human brain, but it can be smaller and less folded. So what accounts for the volume difference in these larger animals? What is that space? It's just axons? Well, there's more extracellular space. The cells are, in fact, uh, further apart, so there is more room. The neurons in those larger animals are actually bigger, so they take up more space. 
And then the cortical layers are thinner. In fact, there aren't maybe even as many cortical layers in some of those large brain mammals. Uh, so there are some very important differences that really haven't been well studied. As you might imagine, it's difficult to get uh, cetacean brain, whale brains, porpoise brains, uh, and elephant brains in order to study them. So, so there's a lot still unexplored territory in, in those comparative features. Yeah, and then there's comparing uh, across different taxa. So looking at the avian brain versus exactly. mammalian brain and all those wonderful questions. So let's move into the more recent work that has come out of your lab on the Zika virus. And we all know that the uh, Zika virus has made a lot of news recently because of infection rates being correlated and pretty causally connected to creating uh, microcephaly in newborns. And so can you tell our audience a little bit about what we know or have been learning relatively recently about how Zika virus affects brain development and stem cells. Yeah, that's exactly an area that we were very intrigued about. So um, I should just back up for a moment and say that we were involved in another project funded uh, actually through one of those Obama Brain Initiative uh, grants, which was to try to understand the sort of toolbox, you know, not the toolbox, I should say, but uh, what are the building blocks of the human brain? You know, what what are the individual cell types that explain the diversity of, of adult neurons that you find in, in the brain. And so we were looking at progenitor cells and stem cells to try to identify them uh, individually and cluster them into different groups. And we decided to do that by looking at the genes that they express. So we were doing single-cell gene profiling of the human brain during development. And so we've uh, analyzed now about eight or 9,000 of these cells. And so we have large lists of genes that are associated with each separate cell type. And I mentioned this as background because we were very interested in Zika microcephaly when we first heard about it and went to the literature. And uh, Alex Pollan, one of the postdocs in my lab, was struck that in skin cells that get infected by the Zika virus. And as you may know, when uh, people first get infected, they often have a, a rash, a head-to-foot papillomacular right. eruption. So these cells, the, the virus rather, infects skin cells, fibroblasts. And there was a paper, uh, two papers that actually made the case that AXL, one of the many different receptors that these viruses can use to enter cells, was the one that seemed most important for mediating the entry of Zika into the skin cells. It was necessary and sufficient for these infected cells to, to develop and then ultimately to burst because they become little viral factories. So uh, what Alex noticed was that AXL was one of the genes that's most highly expressed in our data set in radial glial cells, human radial glial cells. And that's exactly the cell population that you would imagine to be targeted if you're going to produce a smaller brain, because these are the neural stem cells that ultimately produce all the cells in the developing brain. And if you can reduce their numbers early in development, you wind up with a smaller brain. There are genetic causes of microcephaly that have been well studied, and they all seem to target this population of radioglial-like cells or radioglial cells. So we started there, and we looked at our data set more carefully, and it seemed that AXL was highly associated not just with radioglial cells, but also with astrocytes, with microglial cells, and with endothelial cells. And just those particular populations. We didn't see AXL, for example, in neurons, nerve cells, which was a bit surprising since most people uh, have the notion that microcephaly is due to destruction of the cells, the nerve cells themselves. And we didn't see it in other progenitor cells. There's a kind of intermediate progenitor, which is very closely related to radioglia. In fact, the radioglia produce these cells when they divide. And yet those cells don't seem to inherit the AXL protein at all because they don't express it. So there's a very specific pattern of expression. And then we noticed in the eye, in the retina, that the stem cells of the neural retina also express AXL. 
And that was also intriguing because not only do the children with a, a Zika infection have microcephaly, but they also have visual problems hmm. associated with the retina. So we thought this one mechanism of entry of the virus could explain a lot of the features that have been described in patients who come down with this uh, devastating dis disorder. And so we looked at the protein expression uh, with antibodies, and we went to tissue slices of developing brain and also retina, and we're, we're surprised to see that the localization of this uh, receptor was exactly in the right place to mediate viral entry. For example, these radioglial cells I mentioned, they have end feet at the ventricular surface. This is where the cerebrospinal fluid contacts the developing brain. So as you may know, the brain has these uh, ventricles, those fluid-filled cavities, and in the early developing brain, uh, that's where everything starts, in the tissue that lines this ventricle. So the cerebrospinal fluid has direct access to these radioglial cells through the end feet. And that's exactly where the receptor in those radioglial cells is most highly expressed. The other processes of these radioglial cells often contact blood vessels. And we found high expression of AXL there and also in the endothelial cells, which are the blood vessels, the microcapillary blood vessels of the developing brain. And that would be another portal for entry. There could be hematogenous spread of the virus. Once the virus is in the fetus's circulation, it could contact these endothelial cells and then infect them, and through that infection, then get to the radioglial cells. So we saw right. several different ways to explain how the virus could be causing microcephaly based on the, the expression of this protein. Wow. Wow. So that's quite a bit of molecular sleuthing that you did there. I think one of the, the major questions that people have, uh, or at least I have, is why suddenly, in terms of mechanism, as you just described, why is this, uh, the manifestations of Zika, the microcephaly being linked to the virus? As you kind of alluded to, Zika virus has been extant for many years, and it's even been studied in, like, the skin. So is it that people didn't appreciate the link before? I mean, I know you're not an epidemiologist, but maybe you can speak to this. And, and the follow-up to that, really, which is on my mind, is that do we really understand the mechanism well enough to say that Zika virus may not have some issues or some consequences later in development, maybe childhood development or even teenage development, times where your brain is going through a lot of remodeling. Can you speak to those questions? Sure. Well, you've asked several different things. I've tried yeah. to keep them all straight. Uh, well, to begin with, there are multiple different strains, it seems, of related Zika viruses. So it's been around, as you mentioned, for a very long time. Uh, the first reports uh, you know, were back in the 50s uh, in Africa. So there are African strains. There's also in Southeast Asia strains. More recently, there have been outbreaks in French Polynesia. And now people have been comparing the genomes of the virus from these different uh, sources of infection, different ages of the virus. And uh, the virus mutates pretty readily. And so there are uh, many uh, differences in terms of uh, sequencing of these viruses. Whether any of those genetic changes are significant for the correlation that you mentioned of, of microcephaly or other features of the diseases that they produce, that hasn't really been established yet. So I think that's going to be an area that we'll see a lot of progress in in the next uh, few months, really, because people are intensively comparing these different strains of viruses. The other possibility is that the virus hasn't changed, but uh, the populations have changed. So in Africa and Asia, people may get infected by the mosquito at a very young age and acquire you know, immune protection from the infections at the ages when they get older and maybe are of childbearing age. So you might not see as many cases, say, of microcephaly in that population. And then in uh, Brazil and in Polynesia, 
the virus was uh, exposed to an essentially a naive population that hadn't been exposed to the virus earlier. So you had adults and women of childbearing age who were now getting infected. And when they were pregnant, you know, they may well have manifested the microcephaly, which, which the African or Asian version of the virus might have been able to produce, except it just hadn't been observed and, and it was never correlated with the infection. So that's another explanation. And the third possible explanation is that uh, that something else has happened to allow the virus to either enter the cross the placenta in, in pregnant women or perhaps affect the brain in a way that it, it wouldn't have before. All these things were considered. Uh, you know, we, we're going to learn, I think, very soon exactly what the situation is. And my prediction is that these viruses are likely all to have the capacity of causing microcephaly, of invading the brain and producing the same kind of destruction that we're seeing now in, in South America and the Caribbean. But there are other maybe epidemiological reasons why it wasn't observed before. There, an interesting uh, point also from your study is that the dengue virus also uses the AXL protein receptor to gain access to cells. And there was another study that recently came out suggesting that antibodies to dengue might might somehow affect the infectivity or at least the response to Zika infection. And so now there are concerns about the vaccines for dengue that are in development and how that's going to affect Zika infection. And so do we know how many other viruses are potentially using this particular doorway right. into the cells and how far could this connection go? There turn out to be a whole family of different uh, entry factors that help these, these viruses enter cells, and AXL is just one of them. In our paper, we looked at actually all of the ones that have been described in the literature so far and compared them to our gene data for the developing human brain, and we found that many of them are ex expressed in different cells at different stages of development. The AXL receptor is the one we highlighted because of its association directly with the invasion of the skin, and also it was in exactly the right populations to raise our suspicion that it was playing an important role. I should mention it's a hypothesis right now. We haven't proved that AXL is the, is the key factor that allows entry of the virus. But even if it were, it doesn't act alone. There are other linking factors that actually bind the virus to the receptor. And these linking factors are also expressed in the developing human brain. So they're present and could function. The reason I mention that is because one of the goals we have is trying to protect women or protect the fetus from being infected if the woman, for example, has already been infected with the virus. And so we're trying to block the AXL receptor or perhaps one of the associated factors. If we can do something like that, we might be able to prevent the virus, even if it's in the mother's body, from crossing the placenta or from infecting the brain of the, of the fetus. So that way, we hope we might be able to protect these children from getting this virus. So in terms of therapeutic inroads, then, just following up on that point, I guess one option is the, a kind of blocking uh, antibody in, in, in utero type delivery. What other types of therapeutic avenues do you think are to addressing infectivity or dissemination to the fetus of Zika virus? Right. Well, I should just mention for a moment that the paper I mentioned on skin infection using the AXL receptor demonstrated that that was the key receptor based on studies using antibodies that blocked AXL and that reduced the infectivity and also a, uh, a knockdown strategy. The short hairpin molecules that block or, or knock down expression of the AXL protein also protected those skin cells from getting infected by the Zika virus. So there's already a proof of principle that if you have an antibody or some other blocker, you could prevent the infection from occurring in, in, in vulnerable cells. So we're hoping to find something perhaps a a drug or a chemical that's already approved for clinical use 
or uh, a small molecule that, that might actually work in patients and be safe. I think one of the big hurdles is going to be safety because, you know, trying a small molecule a drug on a, a pregnant woman is going to be a very high barrier to, you know, to cross. We don't want to cause any more harm. But I think the urgency is there to try to come up with something that might actually be safe, and we're certainly going to try to look. Do we know what the function of the AXL receptor is in the developing brain? I mean, we know that it's a receptor in adult skin, but what about the brain while it's still developing? Right. That raises another very interesting set of questions because the AXL receptor, as you mentioned, is involved in normal development. It seems to promote uh, cell division. It's a kind of a, a promoter of mitosis. And in fact, it's also played a role in certain tumors, adult tumors. And there are drugs already available, clinically in use, that can block the AXL receptor as a form of uh, therapy against certain cancers. Right. So, uh, you know, that again shows that there's the possibility of strategically blocking the receptor. But I should mention that those drugs have side effects, known side effects. They can cause sterility in, in men and they can cause blindness uh, because the AXL receptor is also involved in uh, certain kinds of uh, of activities, uh, ongoing activities in organs of the adult brain, not just in the, uh, sorry, the adult brain and other organs in the adult the human, as well as in the developing brain and the developing fetus. So there are lots of reasons to be cautious about treating uh, with the drug, even if it's already available for use in p- patients. You know, pregnant women and the developing fetus are two very challenging things. So, uh, Dr. Crixie, I think your study in a raft of many studies that are kind of, uh, I guess, epitomize uh, maybe a new era of publishing where we're doing this fast track idea where things that are major import are kind of getting pushed through the review process on a more rapid pace so we can disseminate these discoveries. Can you t- talk about that a little bit? What was the review process for the, you know, a lot of us struggle with the review processes. Do you think that this was <laughs> maybe a nice, a good thing for the review process for you in terms of the ease? Or do you feel a lot of stress about our anxiety about pushing a study out so quick and, and worried about? Right. Well, uh, it's true that there are uh, journal policies now that uh, help accelerate the publication of, of issues if they're thought to be of pressure, time pressure, or pre- pressure sensitivity like this. And this is a, a public health uh, crisis, really. So I can appreciate that. But I should mention that the review process was, uh, although it was uh, brief, it was as thorough as, as it would normally be in a paper that was reviewed of, you know, in the more traditional timetable. You know, being a reviewer of papers, I have to say, when it comes to reviewing them, it usually doesn't take more than a couple of days. Maybe something you put off for several weeks, but ultimately, the review itself doesn't take more than you know some hours, maybe distributed over a day or two. And so, I think what happens in these expedited review processes is the reviewers are notified ahead of time, so they're prepared. They can sort of clear a bit of time in their schedule. Paper arrives, they review it quickly, and then you know submit their reviews. So I don't think the reviews are in any way uh, less rigorous than they would be if there was a, several weeks involved. But they do occur on a, a more accelerated timetable. And I think that the goal is obviously to benefit the public and other re- researchers. With that in mind, I should also mention in our paper, we, we showed that the AXL receptor was playing a role in both mouse brain development as well as in the development of the ferret, and we also used cerebral organoids. This is a stem cell model of sort of creating a mini brain in a dish, uh, which a lot of laboratories are using now to study human brain development. And we showed that those cells also express the AXL receptor in the same pattern as in the primary cells in the human developing tissue. And we did that because we wanted other investigators who have access to these other systems to be able to start using, you know, this idea, if it's true, 
as a way of studying the mechanisms of the virus and maybe some ways of protecting fetuses. So we wanted to get that also, uh, that information out as quickly as possible so that other labs could, could start to take advantage of that. And then you have not just uh, them taking advantage of the, the process, but also potentially replicating the result and making it much more robust. That's right, exactly. Yeah. I should mention that you know, in our study, the one thing that was missing was that we didn't have access at the time to any live virus. So we were able to test the idea by infecting cells and showing that we could block infection, say, by blocking the receptor. And so that's something that, again, that I think other labs may be able to do right now. And, and I think we uh, are also pr- pursuing those experiments ourselves now that we do have access to the virus. So what level is the virus for safety precautions? Yes, yeah, so it's a biological safety level two right now. Two, okay. I, I've heard some talk that it might go to three or go to the 2B or some, something a little bit uh, higher than, than level two. But right now that's how it's classified. We're treating it as though it's um, at a higher level. Which is always better to be safe than sorry. <laughs> you uh, mentioned that this is a, a crisis. I think uh, there's consensus on that. How do you see it playing out? I mean, can you put it in context maybe relative to like, you know, Ebola, some other kind of viral epidemics? Is It's not, I wouldn't say hysteria, but could you provide some context for the scale of the epidemic? Right. Well, this would not be my own work, but I could comment on what I've been reading. So uh, it's clearly not the same as, say, Ebola. And in terms of the microcephaly, because as you may know, it it also causes other uh, problems in adult patients. But when it comes to the fetus, it's, you know, it's especially devastating. And with that in mind, I should mention that there are other viruses like cytomegalovirus, CMV, which also have been associated with microcephaly. What we're seeing in the cases, at least the scans that I've uh, been able to see, some of which actually haven't been published yet, show a really devastating effect on the developing brain. It's not just that the brain doesn't develop, but even after it's developed, it involutes. There's necrosis and destruction of pre-existing tissue and shrinkage of the brain. And there's calcification, there's what's called ventricular megaly, the ventricles get big, the cortex becomes thin, and it's more than just the cortex that, that gets targeted, including, as I mentioned, the eye and the retina. So I think that uh, people, uh, epidemiologists, not epidemiologists, say neurologists like myself, I've been a pediatric neurologist for, for at least 10 years, and what we see in the clinic, the genetic forms of microcephaly, which are more common or more commonly seen, they can be associated even with a normal IQ. Some of these children you know, can, can actually cope reasonably well, grow and develop. But I don't think you're going to see that very often with these children that are suffering from Zika microcephaly. That's a much more devastating, it looks like much more devastating illness with a lot more uh, potential to really impact the lives of these children in a very negative way you know, throughout their life. It's going to be a real burden on those, uh, those societies. So, th- so that's something to keep in mind. The other thing I was going to mention is the incidence. That is how often somebody who gets uh, infected and pregnant will actually have a fetus who's affected that's not really known yet. There are some numbers, but uh, they're just single case report studies, and we don't have a good feeling for how often when a woman gets infected, she's likely to have infection in the fetus. It right. apparently doesn't happen all the time. So there may be some placental barrier issues that can vary from, in, from woman to woman or infection to infection. And we also don't have a good feeling for what the timing of the infection and the, and the stage of pregnancy might lead to, what the outcomes might be. So there's still a lot of un, unanswered questions, but the, the epidemiologists are at work, and I think we'll have a better understanding soon of just exactly what this virus is doing. But it might be just like dengue malaria. If it's borne by mosquitoes, you could envision where it's just there all the time, and engineering controls are really the only way to, to prevent or mitigate infection. I, I mean, 
are we going to, do you think, come to a point, I'm asking you to predict the future here, my apologies, <laughs> but are we going to find a way to, to treat this? I guess what was so great about your work and what a lot, a lot of people are doing, it seems like maybe we're reaching a watershed with these platforms that we're developing to generate therapeutics. What do you predict? Well, I think the ultimate treatment uh, will come not from the kind of protection that I've talked about, but rather from uh, immunizing patients, you know, with some sort of a... Uh, uh, immunization therapy that prevents them from getting the disease even if they get in, bitten by uh, an infected mosquito. And then the other idea that I like very much is getting rid of the mosquitoes. Uh, I hate mosquitoes myself, and <laughs> I think if we can eliminate these, that would be terrific. Yeah, they are kind of part of the food web, though. Well, but there are so many different, you know, thousands of different species. Of right, different species, yes. You get rid of the Aedes aegyptis. And- exactly. So, so the Aedes aegypti would be the one you want to get rid of first, but there are other related mosquito species that could also be vectors for the Zika virus. So getting rid of those Aedes aegypti might create a niche for one of the other mosquitoes to occupy, and they may also be able to spread the disease. So it might require getting rid of more than one species of mosquito. And so I think that is not a clear, you know, simple project. I think it's going to be a little bit more complicated than just exterminating one species. But I, I, I really like the idea, and I hope I hope that works. <laughs> I really uh, pity the mosquito. It's not often you hear a scientist say, "I love that idea." When it comes to totally annihilating a species, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but unfortunately, I bet you wouldn't say that for any other species on Earth. But the mosquito, there's pretty widespread consensus: no yeah. upside to mosquitoes. These poor fellows. That's how I feel. But I am not one of those people, you know, who are very sensitive to mosquitoes. I seem to attract them all the time, and. I grew up in New Jersey, and I, I hated the evenings in New Jersey because as soon as the sun set, this cloud of mosquitoes would sort of rise from the swamps, and you'd have to have a few minutes to get indoors or it was all over. <laughs> the cloud would surround you. <laughs> yeah, buzzing. It was horrible. <laughs> so as, as you're moving forward on your Zika research and also the stem cell research in general, what are the things in process that uh, you can tell us about currently? Well, so, uh, you know, it's not surprising that studying brain development in stem cells uh, gets me very excited about the ability to model this now in laboratories all around the world using induced pluripotent stem cells that you can drive into uh, little cerebral tissues uh, that really recapitulate a lot of the stages of normal fetal brain development. So this gives us access to processes, you know, that we could never, we could only dream about studying in the past. I mean, how could you otherwise study these early stages of brain development in human cells? So that's now becoming possible, and not only in normal brain development, but of course in cells derived from patients who have genetic diseases of brain development. And the technology is just starting, really, so it's getting better and better. The earlier stages, we can model reasonably well, but at the stages when the neurons are migrating and starting to interact and form circuits, that's so far been a little bit elusive because you can't seem to keep these tissues live long enough for them to do their own thing because, in fact, they self-assemble and they actually differentiate on their own under the right circumstances. So I think those are technical challenges that will probably be resolved or at least will make progress year by year. And so I think in the future, we're likely to be able to model some of those really interesting things that happen later in development that underlie diseases like schizophrenia or autism, diseases that probably involve synapse formation and circuits, very specific cortical circuits. And uh, to study those in the human brain you know, was impossible until the stem cell breakthroughs came along. And so that's something I think that many of us are really, really are interested in human brain development are very excited about. Yeah. And like you mentioned, working with the, uh, the organoids, these mini brains, I mean, 
you've got a network there. You've got cells interacting with each other and developing in a way that's very, very similar to the natural brain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, that's one of the things that we're doing. We're taking advantage of our uh, data set, that's the genes that are expressed in cells in the normal developing brain, and comparing them to the same cell types that we're making from stem cells to see how close they really match what the actual cells are supposed to be. And that's turning out to be very, very intriguing, very interesting data. And are you going to keep working on the Zika question? Yes. I mean, I think there's a, as you mentioned, there's a real pressure to do this quickly. And so we've been lucky at UCSF that we have some great collaborators. So we're teaming up with uh, Joe DeRisi, who's an infectious disease expert, a great scientist with a lot of background in these kinds of viruses. Also, Susan Fisher, who's here at UCSF, works on uh, human placenta. And we're very interested in helping her and uh, collaborating on work to look at how the virus gets to the fetus by way of the placenta. And so all the different elements of this problem are sort of being assembled locally. Nice. And we're all working together to try to get answers as quickly as we can to some of the questions we mentioned earlier. It's very exciting. I wish you all the luck in answering a lot of these questions and getting to those answers quickly. It's just been fascinating getting to talk with you today. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Krigstein. This is really great. All right. That was a really amazing interview. Krigstein had so many things to say about Zika virus and the infection pathways and how this is potentially going to be affecting individuals. And going back to the story from my segment in the roundup, you know, how many people are going to be, how many more people are going to be affected by Zika virus and why these mechanisms are things we need to know. I don't know if I feel better about Zika or I feel worse about Zika after that conversation. I'll be honest, I don't feel I don't feel better. I feel very uncertain. I feel uncertainty and it's causing me stress. Oh no. Maybe we can turn this into a positive and find out things that you can do about it, right? <laughs> you need to stop. <laughs> you need to stop okay. that. There is nothing positive about Zika and, and, and mosquitoes too. You're voting for the mosquitoes. I'm tired of it. If we can annihilate smallpox, we can annihilate mosquitoes. And I'm, I'm sticking to that. <laughs> you know, mosquitoes, they, they, it's not their fault. Yeah, I guess. It's not their fault. Anyway... <laughs> We don't have to keep it. I don't have to keep it all positive all the time. So it's time for our rant, right? Yeah. Bring it negative. I don't want you to come in with like, oh, this world is bad. But if we're good, then the world will be good. That's not a rant. Okay. Be angry. (laughs) Okay. Right. Because this is our chance to complain about something that bothers us. And so maybe it bothers you too. And so today we're going to rant about people Here's what I think. People who never seem to be able to think about anyone or anything other than than themselves. Self-centeredness. The worst. Like ultimate self-centeredness. The world, universe, you are the center of the universe kind of idea of life. I mean, where they're the most important person in any situation, anything that inconveniences them in the slightest it's the worst thing in the world, and they're going to yell at you. They're going to yell at other people on the street. And it's just, what's up with this? And why does it seem like it's getting more and more common? Like, I go outside, and people are yelling at other people because, oh, you took my parking spot. Nah. Or, hey, your truck is in the way. Or, Bleh. your grocery cart bumped into my grocery cart. It's like, what? Can't we all just get along? <laughs> to quote the, the great Rodney King, the uh, I don't know. They they want to call that millennials. They like to say it's millennials. But I, I think it's a general, even old people. 
they they're very uh, impatient intolerant and i think just generally people are are becoming more jerks i got a variation on that theme it's it's the same idea it's like oh my problems are the worst and I'm so focused on what I do. I'm just going to put it out there. I'm going to share it with you, but not like share like I want to talk about it or get some advice. It's like I want you to share my problem. For example, I mean, this is I have a name for these people. Like I call them ask holes because they come <laughs> up to you they're like, oh, man, you know, I guess I'm so busy working. I got to move out of my apartment in a couple of days. You want to come over and help me move? I mean, listen. Back in college, I'll throw a couch here and there. Right. You know, I'll carry a couple bucks. But I'm a grown man. I got kids. I got my own stuff. You can't just ask me to help you move, you asshole. And and what the real problem is that that is, <laughs> is that I'm so uncomfortable saying no that like I, I, I'm paralyzed. You ask, and I'm just like ah, uh, I don't know. I, let me see. I got to check with this and the other thing. And at the end of the day, what do I do? I find myself, you know, driving a U-Haul truck. Like and feeling like a real a-hole because of this asshole. I got to learn how to say no. Maybe they, if I, we want to get constructive, how are you going to change these people? All they do is think about themselves. What can we do? You're positive. How can we turn this around? My thing is I'm going to start saying no. I think that's a good place to start, being able to stand up for yourself and say no. Where else do you start? You start with yourself. We can't control the actions of anyone else. We all got to just take care of ourselves. And if, you know, it's unfortunate that somebody wants to put you in that position of having to say no, and that's why they are the asshole. But then you just say no. And then you go about your day and you're not driving that U-Haul. <laughs> and maybe then you're smiling at people because you're happy and you don't take out anything on other people down the line. So with one, <laughs> one single no, we start the chain of happiness. Maybe that's, that's right. it. Enough <laughs> complaining. We need more no in the world. Maybe that's true. But, you know, it's the end of the show. So I hope everyone says yes to sharing this episode with other people, with telling people about it, and listening to the next episode, episode 66, when we get to it. Send us your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. This totally concludes the epi this episode 65 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Totally great information, great interview. It was a, I got to be less positive in my rant. So that's good. You're making big steps. <laughs> I'm, making, I'm so proud of you. Making progress. <laughs> I, I was a little more positive. I feel like we're coming to the middle, you and I. That's right. Ugh, this is the end of this episode, not the middle. And so <laughs> <laughs> I ask everyone to show up for episode 66, where we will be back yet again talking about stem cell science, the latest papers, all sorts of great science stuff. Daylin. I will see you then. All right, Kiki. Great talking to you. Let's put it in the books. <laughs>